uh, I noticed something buttoned, and I thought, well, I wonder how long that's been like that, you know, and this is all while I'm preaching, and I reached down to button it, and then the button popped right off. So Cindy had to do an emergency fix this afternoon of a button, but I thought, how fitting after Thanksgiving that I'd lose a button while preaching a sermon. Anyway, one too many pieces of pie. You know, when I hear that song that we just sang, um, I, I couldn't help but think of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane there, praying and uh, saying, uh, not my will, but thine be done. And uh, in our text, Philippians chapter 2, it's a familiar passage of Scripture. Um, I'm going to read, beginning in verse 1, uh, and we're going to read through the part that is very familiar to us. I'm not going to make any, well, I'm not going to say I'm not going to make any comments. I'm not going to preach on it. And then what I would like to do is, after we are reminded of what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did for us, his humility, making himself of no reputation, um, there's a result, there's an expectation that the Holy Spirit of God, by the Word of God, lays out for us how we ought to respond. So when we come to a service like this, the Lord's Supper, of course, we're reminded of Christ's suffering. We're reminded of his selflessness. We're reminded of his humility, making himself of no reputation, his, his suffering. We're reminded of that. But to what end? Now, of course, the answer to that would obviously be salvation from death and hell. But in this life, there's a purpose. There's an expectation that God has for you and for me. And, and I want to look at it this, this evening. Look at verse 1, Philippians chapter 2. He says, if there, therefore be, uh, if there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if you've ever been consoled in him, if any comfort of love, if you've ever been comforted by his love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if he lives within you, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, Paul writes, that ye be like-minded, talking about unity within a church, having the same love, that same sacrificial love, being of one accord, one accord, that's unity, and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife, or vain glory, empty honor. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. When we look at one another, we ought to think of one another as being better than we are. And that ought to be, that ought to be done throughout this entire congregation all over the place. That ought to be happening. Verse 4 now. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So we'd, be, we'd prefer to give than to get. Um, we're looking at what others need rather than what we think we need. Verse 5, now the familiar passage. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And of course, the elements tonight, the bread symbolizes Jesus' body that was broken. His bones were not broken, but his body was broken, and he bled profusely. Um, the, the juice rep represents his blood that was shed. And remember, without that blood, without his blood being shed, there would be no forgiveness of sin. So we see this here in verse 8. But then what happened after the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? Look at verse 9. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the supreme authority. That's what that name of God, Lord, means, supreme authority. And he says all of this is to the glory of God the Father. It all brings glory to God. So Jesus' death on the cross, his suffering, his resurrection, and his exaltation, and I love that part. Um, 
I love, I love that part, that he is not still in that tomb, but he led captivity captive. And uh, you remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, it was said uh, that you'll bruise, Satan, you'll bruise his heel, uh, but he's going to crush your head, is what uh, was prophesied of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ over the devil. I think for a while Satan thought that he had the upper hand while the Son of God hung on a cross and was drawing his last breath. And when God the Father forsook his Son and could not look upon him to a sense and turned away from him. And you remember Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the the Bible says the whole earth shook. It was a terrible moment. And you remember before that, uh, Mary standing before him and John with her, and Jesus looking upon them and saying uh, to his mother, this is your son, and John, this is your mother. You're going to take care of my mom, John. And uh, what a terrible day that was. And I think from Satan's perspective, for a while, he had the upper hand. But I'm so happy to read about the exaltation of Christ. He rose from the grave, and he sits on the right hand of the Father. He is the supreme authority of all the heaven and all the earth. What a, what a victory. Uh, look at our text now, verse number 12. We see the word wherefore. Wherefore. When you see a wherefore, you look before to find out what for, or same is true for therefores. But Paul, as he's talking to this church at Philippi, he's given them a lot to think about. He's talked about the mind of Christ. Now, they were to have that mindset. He's talked about the exaltation of Christ and the death of Christ and his sacrifice for them and making himself of no reputation, selflessness, all these sort of things. And now we come to this wherefore, and really what we find is, as a result of what Christ has done, what should we do in this life? What is it that God expects? And I think there are two expectations that I notice in this passage. One is we're to take responsibility for today. Because of what Christ has done, you and I, as the the recipients of his sacrifice and his victory, you and I have a responsibility to uh, or we have a, a respons- to take responsibility for today, number one. Number two, we have a responsibility to prepare for the future by how we live our lives today. In other words, we come to this time, and we ought to, we're obeying Christ's command, we'll remember his suffering and his sacrifice, but what responsibility do we bear? Should we sit here this evening and partake of the elements and rejoice in, and thank God for his sacrifice for us and do nothing with it? And the answer to that, according to the Apostle Paul, is no. Look at verse number, verse number 12. He says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, that's quite a statement, up to this point, at least they had always been obeying his words, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. And the idea is, lay hold of all that God has purchased for you. And work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he says. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. So let's pray, and as we pray, I want you to think with me, as we've already spoken, I've already talked to you about, as a result of Christ's sacrifice, what is it that God expects from me? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray as we look at your word that you would guide our thoughts Father, we know that without you, we can do nothing. And Father, you have saved us from death and hell, and you have saved us from sin today. 
We do know that there is a battle, a war sometimes between your Holy Spirit within us and our old man who has been put to death. We're not in bondage anymore to him, but Father, we still sometimes struggle in this life and we make wrong choices and we give in to weaknesses and temptation. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts by your word this evening, and I'll praise you for it. May you be glorified in us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So number one, I noticed that we're to take responsibility for our lives today. Take responsibility for today. We're to take uh, personal responsibility for how we are living our lives. How many of us like responsibility? It's so funny. You know, it is. It is funny, isn't it? We're adults, and there's to a degree when we hear that, we're kind of like, hmm, what's the responsibility? What am I responsible for? You know, as we grow older, I think we grow more responsible. We should, anyway. Um, But your response was uh, humorous, to say the least. Look at verse 12 and 13 again. He says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and do, and to do of his good pleasure. Wonderful verses there. In no way is Paul teaching that we can work our way to heaven. Okay, When he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he's not saying that a person can work his way to heaven. Of course, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 teaches the opposite of that. He says, for by, for by grace are ye saved. For, for by the unmerited favor of God are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, in verse 10, though, goes on to say, in a verse we're not too familiar with, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Um, work, we are his workmanship. Whenever I build something or do something, I always love when my wife comes out and looks at it. And she's busy, she's got other things to do, I know, but I love it when she comes out and looks at it and just sees what I'm doing. I just love it. I don't know why, I love it. And if I, if I built something that I think is nice, I'm always, I really enjoy it if she's impressed by what I've done, my workmanship, okay? Um, we are the Lord's workmanship. Now think about that. Have you ever done, have you ever built something you got done with and you were kind of like, you're going to hide that? Have you ever done that? I've done that a few times. It was terrible. You know, it was bad. You, you don't want anybody to see it. And then there are other times you've done something, maybe I've done something that was impressive, we thought, anyway. Well, we are his workmanship. Is his workmanship impressive? You know yourself very well. I know myself very well. We are his workmanship, and he says, created unto good works. It is God's intent, by his sacrifice, sending his son to die on the cross for you and for me, that we would be saved, yes, from death and hell to come, but also by the power of the Holy Spirit of God in us, we are saved to serve God and do so in a way that brings honor and glory to God. That's God's plan. And he's foreordained that we should walk in them. People who are saved are God's workmanship, and people who are saved have been, uh, who have been, have been saved to serve the Lord, to work for him. It is work for a child of God to live in the truth of God's word. It's work for a Christian to live out the truths of the Bible. You're going to have to persist And when you and I fall, we're going to have to humble ourselves and confess our sin and by the grace of God, get back up and continue on and persist in our walk with the Lord. In the Bible, the believers are repeatedly encouraged to take inventory of how we live our lives. And I want you to do that tonight. Are you being a good steward of your life? 
Now again, tonight's a um, communion service. We're, we're reminding ourselves, we're remembering Christ and his sacrifice for us. But if all we do is remember that Jesus died for us, he bled and suffered in our place, and that he was selfless, and that he was sacrificial, and that he was love, and we walk out of these doors selfish, self-centered, you see the problem with that. One of the reasons, I believe, for the Lord's Supper is to be reminded of who it is that we're following. Are we following? Are we truly following him? So we should embrace the stewardship of our lives seriously. Look again at verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul compliments this Philippian church in that they had always, at least up to this point, obeyed his words. Isn't that great? I love that. I kind of took a double take when I was studying that. Always, I thought. Always, at least up to this point, they had obeyed his instructions, and they had done so in his presence. And now he urges them to continue to obey his words, even when he's not around, when he's absent from them. And he's, of course, in this, uh, to the Philippians, he's writing from a prison under house arrest. So he's not there. And I have to ask a question to us. Are we serious about the stewardship of our lives? In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Bible tells us, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20, the Bible says, For ye are bought with a price. What was that price that we were bought with? The blood of Christ. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And I ask myself the question as we are gathered here this evening, Seth, are you glorifying God in your body, which belongs to him? Seth, are you glorifying God in your spirit that belongs to God? I know we can, we can go and throughout this next week we can worry or be anxious. I know we can grumble and complain. I know that we can covet, right? We can do it all. We've got enough flesh in the room here, if we follow our flesh, to, to live very selfishly. I know that. But in this passage, he's talking about stewardship, and he's saying, I want you to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through your physical body. I want the way you live to honor God. Do you want that? I want that. I want God to be honored through me. I want him to be glorified through me. So we're to take personal responsibility for the life that God has given to us. You know that you're personally responsible for your life. I'm personally responsible for my life. I can't live your life for you, and you can't live your life for me. We're all going to stand before the Lord someday. We're all going to give an account to him for how we lived this life. Our lives, individually, we're going to give an account to God for how we lived our lives. Did we glorify him or did we dishonor him? I've told you many times before, the way to honor the Lord is to say yes to his Holy Spirit. Say yes to the Holy Spirit. I don't mean to to sound cliche. I don't want to overuse it. But when he moves in your life and and he is uh, likened unto a dove in the word of God. Uh, my father used to talk about him in the sense of a still, small voice. In other words, Seth, he'd say, you're going to have to listen for him. He's not going to come in with a bullhorn. You're going to have to listen for him. You're going to have to have a humble heart. You're going to have to have your ear in tune with him if you want to hear him. But when you do, and you say yes to him, it leads to a God-honoring and a God-glorifying life. And so we're bought with a price. Be reminded of that here this evening when you take that bread and that juice and you put it inside of your mouth and you chew on that bread that represents his flesh and you drink that juice that represents uh, our justification, our being declared righteous. Remind yourself that It was with that 
price that you and I were purchased. And we ought to take personal responsibility for the life that God has given to us. The decisions we make on this earth should be made, he says in verse 12, with fear and trembling. Do you see that in verse 12? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I don't often preach standards. I don't. And maybe to a fault. I try the best I am able to preach the word of God. And I trust the Holy Spirit within your hearts to convict you. I trust that you go home and during, not just after a sermon or a a service, but I trust that during the week, that as the children of God and the Spirit of God living within you, that he is convicting you when you do what is wrong. Or you start to get off track, just as he does in my life. And and every one of us as individuals need to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Knowing that we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ someday and we're going to give an account to him for how we've lived our lives in this earth. There, there, There might be some here this evening you'd say, you know, Pastor Ferguson, I don't know if you'd agree with this particular movie that I like to watch or this particular show or this particular music, or you might not agree with how I do this or how I do this. You know, I don't know what you do, and that's okay. Um, really, to a degree, it doesn't matter what I think of what you do. What I, what I long for you is that you would live every day of your life not concerned about what does Pastor Ferguson think about this. Because ultimately, that really doesn't matter. Because I can be wrong. But, but what does God think? And what is he going to say about what I'm doing with the life that he's given to me? That's where I long for us as a church to operate. So, fear and trembling. Do we live our lives that way? Do we make decisions with fear and trembling about what, what is God going to say about what I'm about to do? And we ought to do it because our, brief, our, our lives on this earth here are brief. We live brief lives, but they have eternal results. That, no pressure. <laughs> Does it, do any of us here lack wisdom? I do. I pray, according to James chapter 1, promise, If any man lack wisdom, let him, ask, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. I pray, according to that passage, God, give me wisdom. I have four children, and I wish I had the wisdom of some of you who are, who are older than me. But you know, the way God set it up was for me to train up my children when I'm in my 30s. And that's just the way it is. I don't get to do it when I'm in my 50s. Maybe when I'm in my 50s, I'll have greater wisdom, I hope I do, than the wisdom I have now about training up children. But, but, but it's scary because... Uh, we've had several speakers who have likened child training to, to the shooting of an arrow. And once the arrow leaves the bow, there's no changing its course. So it is kind of scary, isn't it? And so many things in our lives, we only get one shot at it. And then it's over. And we don't get to do it again. And yet, we will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and we will give an account to him for what we did with what he gave us. The lives that he gave us, the children that he gave us, the church that he gave us, the, the, the place of employment that he has given us, the, the personal relationships, the marriage relationships that he's given us, we're going to be held account for these things. And so there is an element, it ought to be an element of fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. We would be wise to remember what that God sees everything that we do. In Proverbs 15 and verse 3, the Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. We are commanded to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Well, Romans chapter 14 and verse 10, the latter part says, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Remember, the judgment seat of Christ is a place of reward. You like rewards? I like rewards. You like rewards, Will? Yeah, I like rewards too. And there's going to be a place of rewards someday in heaven with God. And it's going to be pretty amazing. Have you ever 
expected a reward only to find out you had done the job the wrong way and you didn't get the reward. That's happened to me a few times in life. God says that he's going to wipe every tear away from our eyes. I do think some tears will be shed on that day. I do think there'll be some regret on that day. But I want you to know, as the children of God, you and I don't have to live lives on this earth earth that are regretful. We don't have to do that. But I also know, and I'm very conscious of it, that you're in a battle and that I'm in a battle as well. Fear and trembling. He says in Romans 14, he goes on in verse 11, he says, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. We're all going to kneel before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we're all going to give an account of what we've done with that, with what he's provided for us. And it's not a matter to be taken lightly, is it? We should be very serious about how we're living our lives today because how we're living our lives today affects forever, forever. I also notice in verse 13, this idea of stewardship. We ought to embrace this idea of stewardship with a positive attitude. Look at verse number 13. He says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now that's just a wonderful truth. Okay, it is... God, which worketh in you, Paul tells the church at Philippi, God is actively working in you. He's energizing you. He's empowering you. He, by his spirit, we know, the Bible says, is teaching us and he's convicting us and he's guiding us. And earlier on in in chapter 2, he's talking about if there's any comfort of love and if you've ever been consoled. And of course, we know who does that, though the Spirit of God does that within us. It seems to me, I think, sometimes that some believers, they, we, we do embrace the responsibility of our lives seriously. We embrace the idea of stewardship seriously, but we do so in a negative way, almost in a hopeless way, I should say. We're, we're very serious about it, but some believers are under the impression that they can't please God at all. They can never do enough. I can never give enough. I can never be good enough. And that's a wrong way of looking at this. Because according to verse number 13, he's telling us, and it's, a, I think, a, a truth that ought to give, console our hearts and encourage our hearts. It's an encouraging truth. He says, it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God, you're not alone. God is actively working in your life. And you are not alone. You are not forsaken And yes, there are times when we lack wisdom and we don't know exactly, we lack knowledge and we lack understanding and we lack experience. And sometimes we we do walk in the flesh and consequences are coming in upon us and, and you know it's not enjoyable when those things are happening. But the wonderful truth of this passage is, and it is entirely encouraging, and that is you are not alone God has, God has not forsaken you. He has a beautiful, wonderful plan for your life, his will for your life. And he, he, God within you, from within you, is actively working to accomplish his will. And that's all within this context of Jesus selflessly coming to this earth and giving himself for you and for me, not just salvation for eternity future, but so that God could actively work from within us to accomplish his purpose through us. That's amazing. And so trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Tomorrow morning when the sun comes up or maybe before the sun comes up and you get up, Know that God is with you and he's actively working in your life. And look to him for direction. Look to him for strength. The second truth is not only take responsibility for today, but secondly, prepare for the future. Prepare for the future. We're to live our lives today in a way that will result in rejoicing in the future. And I ask the question, are you living your life in such a way That when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, because he died for you, because he loved you when you 
He loved me when we were unlovable. And so we're going to stand before him. The day of reward. Are we living our lives today? And we're fully provisioned. We have everything that we need. Are we living our lives today in such a way that our actions today are going to lead to rejoicing in that day? Or are we living our lives in such a way today that it's, it's going to be regrettable on that day? So prepare for the future. Look at verse 14. He says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. We'll come back to that. That ye may be blameless and harmless. That's not regrettable, being blameless and harmless. That, those are positive things. The sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. And we live in a crooked and perverse nation today. Among whom ye shine as lights in the world. That's not regrettable, that's positive. Verse 16, holding forth the word of life. And then Paul says that I may rejoice in the day of Christ when he stands before him, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. What kind of a, of a life, what kind of living today will result in rejoicing in that wonderful day? What kind of a life here on earth will produce rejoicing in the day of Christ at the judgment seat of Christ? And he tells us in verse 14, to do all things without murmurings and disputings. The word murmurings there means grumbling. How many of you grumble? Are you a grumbler? Mm. You know, even adults grumble, don't we? Grumbling, murmur. Everyone, I want you to say murmur on the count of three together, out loud, okay? Are you with me? All right, one, two, three, murmur. I just love that word. Can you hear it? It's just in the word. You murmur, murmur, it's just in the word. You know, the, the, the Israelites were known for their murmuring. You want to do it again? Okay, all right. All right, we won't do it again. Murmuring is anti-Christ, okay? It's not godly. Complaining, murmuring, grumbling. Do we have to? I don't Kids are talking to one another about what the decision mom's making or dad's making. People are talking to one another about... Normally it, normally it has to do with authority, normally. But not always. Just murmuring. It's so ungodly. Can I just say this? It's so beneath you. It's so beneath you. It's, it's our old flesh. It's our old man. I get that. I've got it too. I've done my fair share of murmuring. Okay? But it's wrong. It's sinful. And it's living a life that Christ has given us at great cost to himself and shame to himself. It's, it's living the life that he has given us way below what he paid for it. We've been saved to walk in newness of life, not live like we used to live, not live like people who are unsaved live, who really, they're hopeless. They don't have any choice. They are slaves to sin. And so complain and murmur. You know that you can murmur without talking? You can murmur with your face? The old eye roll. I'm not going to do it. You do it great, Cindy. I'll tell you. You're really good at it. See Cindy Dodge afterwards. She's got a mean eye roll. You'd really be impressed. Do you want to do it now? No. Okay. All right. We, we can. We can do it with the eye roll, the sigh. We, we, we get, we're good at it. We really are. It comes somewhat naturally. And it's just so beneath us. Murmurings, grumbling. He uses the term disputings. You know what that means? It means debating. Debating. Well, I think. Well, I think. Well, I think. Well, I, well, I think. And you say something, and I think something. And now you say, and I say. And now you say, and I say. And debating. 
And, and what is he telling us here? Do all things, everything you do, do it without murmurings or disputings. It has no place in the church. It has no place in the, the home of the Christian family. It has no place in the marriage of a Christian husband and wife. But you and I, all, we all know that at times it finds its way in. And it finds its way in when you and I live below. We live in the flesh. We walk in the flesh. And it's not the life that he saved us to live. Prepare for the future. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. I th- what, what are some of the causes of, of murmuring, grumbling, and debating? Well, I think pride. Self-serving, thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. I deserve better than this. No one should treat me that way. They probably shouldn't. They, they probably shouldn't. But they did. It, it's interesting that this comes up in the context of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, making himself of no reputation and, and being for us the most beautiful example of humility. And it's right here in this passage. He left heaven. He made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself, form of a man, servant, to do the will of another, to take the sins of the whole world, none of which he deserved, and to suffer rebuke and shame at the highest level and rejection from the people that he came to save, and even from his own father when he became sin for us. And it's in this context that he, Paul now tells the church, as you're thinking about his humility and his sacrifice and his selflessness, it should never be said of you, murmurings and disputings. Never. And nothing you do. Okay, I got the point. But we really... We really ought to let that sink in. What are some of the results of murmurings and disputings? Well, division, critical spirit, unthankfulness, rebellious, gossip, surmisings, confusion. What's happening? Separation. But what is the end result when a child of God lives a a life daily without murmuring and disputing. And that's what he's after. He he puts it in the positive. And the end result is rejoicing. Both the individual who lived his life here on earth without murmurings and disputings, and the saints in heaven will rejoice in the day of Christ as a result of humble, contented, selfless lives that are lived on this earth. Do you know that? It is to the praise of the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when you and I live a life that is Christ-like, selfless, submissive, sacrificial, not murmuring, not arguing and disputing, but humble. And you know that as we lower ourselves, Christ is exalted. So when you're wronged, Go through the proper channels. Do it the right way. But it's okay. You say, but I'm being belittled. I'm being taken advantage of. I'm underappreciated. Okay, that's flesh rearing its ugly head. You've got to be able to see that. That's not the Spirit of God living in you doing that. It's godless, wicked sin. And you can't follow it. What can we expect should we decide to follow Jesus' example in this passage of humility and forgo the grumbling and the debating of our flesh? Well, look at verse number 15, the beginning part. We can expect to be blameless and harmless. Verse 15. This this is a wonderful testimony, and it ought to be a wonderful testimony of every church member. Look at this. He says that, in in verse 14, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Verse 15 that ye may be blameless and harmless. The word blameless means unblameable or faultless. You're not to be blamed. Have you ever done something and you were to blame? (laughs) Like you were the one? Yeah, I've been there. 
It was just a matter of time until mom and dad found out. Isn't that, a, isn't that terrible to live like that? You know, oh, when, when are they going to find out? When He's like, Dad, good to, he'd come in and say, hey, Seth, what are you up to? And I'm like, good to see you. You know, and it wasn't good to see him. It was scary to see him. And, and then if he didn't know, I felt bad. And it's good to be blameless. It's good to be faultless. Harmless. The word harmless means innocent. And I love the word harmless. Beautiful word. Harmless. You know, God's people ought to be harmless. We really should be. This ought to be a haven. It ought to be a haven. When God's people get together, the, the children of God, he calls us in this verse. The children of God. God's children. It ought to be beautiful when the children of God get together because they're filled with the Spirit of God and they're, they're saying yes to the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word and His Spirit within us and He's leading us into greater unity with one another and sacrificial love for one another and we have this concern for one another. We love one another. It ought to be that way. That's His standard. What can we expect if we're going to follow Christ's example of humility and not grumble and not debate? Well, we can expect to be blameless and harmless. We won't hurt one another. You do know that we can hurt one another, right? We can hurt each other more than the world can hurt us, I'm telling you. That's not often the way that it is, but it can be. Don't let it happen. What's one other thing that we can... We can forego if we'll follow Christ's example of humility. Well, look at verse 15, the middle part. He says, we'll have no need of being rebuked by God. He says, without rebuke. That's an unblemished reputation. Now, I know in the passage in, back in, earlier in chapter 2, he says that Christ made himself of no reputation. But the reality is every one of us has a reputation. Did you know that? We all have a reputation. What's your reputation? Are you, is your reputation harmless and blameless, not argumentative? Is your reputation one of honesty? Those are good things, aren't they? Well, he says here that without rebuke, having an unblemished reputation. And of course, we, you know that I have four children, right? And there are times when each one of them has to be rebuked. There were times as a child I had to be rebuked. Paul actually told Timothy to preach the word, to be in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. There are times when a pastor rebukes a church. There's a time for that. Uh, there are times when our Heavenly Father rebukes us. In Hebrews 12 and verse 6, he says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So those who follow Christ's example of humility don't need to be rebuked. That's wonderful. If, if you and I will follow his example, there's no need for a rebuke. That's great. I can remember thinking as a child at times, Pastor Scott, that I would always get spankings the rest of my life. I thought, I remember my dad talking to me about and trying to set up before me a goal of not getting a spanking on a day. And you know, I had frankly had just given up. That wasn't possible. It seemed like it, and I'm sure it's not true, but it seemed like it to me as a child that I would be rebuked the rest of my days. And I think some of us kind of operate there too. In the habit of living a life that's rebukable and regrettable. And I want you to know you don't have to do that, but you're going to have to follow the Spirit of God. You're going to have to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do, and, and, it, and it can become habitual... You can develop habits and disciplines to do it, and I can as well. And it's going to take some growing pains as we grow in the Lord, but you can live a life that's without rebuke. And there's a third truth, and that is that we'll shine as lights in the world. And we'll, we'll finish with this one. Believers who are following Jesus' example of humility will shine as lights in the world. Look at verse 15. The latter part, he says, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. We live in a pagan society, don't we? A society that's actively rebelling against God. And God wants his holy habitation. 
He wants his building, not made with hands. That's you and me. He wants, uh, he wants his temple. That's you and me. He wants us to shine as lights in the world. Paul's message in this passage is not given to apostles either, by the way. He's not talking to a pastor, particularly, in this passage. He's not talking to missionaries or an evangelist. God is talking to the local church uh, at Philippi. He's talking to you and to me. He's talking to the body of Christ. And he wants the local church to shine so brightly in the world that wherever we are in the world will shine for the glory and praise of God. And the truth is that the blacker the darkness, the brighter the light. And it is dark out there. I, I have a question for you as we draw this to a conclusion. How does God expect us to shine forth as lights in the world? What makes our light effective in this perverse world? Well, look at verse 16, the beginning part. He says, holding forth the word of life. That's how. Holding forth the word of life. I don't, it's been a while since I read it, but I think it was about D.L. Moody, and he might have been the one to say it. And I think he said... Uh, to believers, he said, you're the only Bible that most people will ever read. Your life. Most people who are unsaved don't go home, sit down and read the infallible word of God. They're not reading through the Bible in a year, but they are watching you and me. And I've said to you many times, in the place of work where you find yourself, a place that I do not have access to, place that Pastor Burden does not have access to, in your place of employment, people are watching your life. Are they seeing the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not our opinions that make the difference. It is the word of life. Isaiah 55 in verse 10 says, For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, And then he says, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. In Jeremiah 23 and verse 28, the Bible says, The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? You see, we live, may live in a perverse world, and these believers certainly did as well, but the word of God is powerful. Look at verses 17 and 18, and we'll be done. He says this in verse 17. Look at verse 16, the middle part. He says, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. That's kind of an interesting statement Paul makes. Talks about how they need to hold forth the word of life so that his life will not, and his ministry will not have been in vain. In verse 17 he says, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, he says, if I have to sacrifice and pay the ultimate price for your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, He says, I joy and rejoice with you all. It'll be worth it. And he says, for the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. You know that Paul's life was a life very much that was like Christ. Paul lived a life of sacrifice. He suffered so much in order to take God's word to those in darkness. Paul was willing and ready to give his life on behalf of Christ. Paul really had embraced the humble example of the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 2. And Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 records for us, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And Paul is telling the Philippian church, he says, I, I joy. I want you to joy with me. I want you to rejoice with me. You see, the path of humility is what we've been talking about, and the path of humility is a path of joy. Do you ever find yourself growing full of anxiety and frustration? about a situation, about an illness. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's, it's a coworker or uh, a job, a place of employment, whatever it is. Have you ever found yourself getting 
and full of anxiety and frustration and you just want to get it right, which what we mean by that is we want it the way we want it, which probably wouldn't work out in the end. and We'd want it differently eventually. And what Paul is saying to this church, he's saying, take responsibility for today and prepare for the future. And you do that by humbling yourself. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd bless us as we now partake of the elements. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. Thank you that he lives in us and through us and that he sits on the right hand of the Father. Father, I pray that you'd be glorified in us as a church and I will praise you for it. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Take your hymnals. Turn to hymn number 276. 276, Jesus paid it all. 276. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as third. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white. Let's stand on that last and when before the throne. And when before the throne I stand in him complete. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Thank you, you may be seated. Pastor Scott, would you please stand and would you give thanks to God?